Welcome to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ, located in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman, and these podcasts are taken from my weekly Sunday morning sermons. We pray that they will bless you, and we would love for you to come visit us and make our church home, hopefully, become your church home. Here's what we have for today. So we find ourselves today on the second to last sermon of our series, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And we've been on it for what? This is, I think, week 12, where we've been taking some of the the hard sayings of Jesus from his words in the Gospels and breaking them down, trying to understand them as best we can, and then trying to apply them to our lives as best we can. And so today um, we come towards the end. So if you've missed any and you want to listen to them, they're online. You can find them on our iTunes podcast page or on our SoundCloud page under the name of our church. Uh, Also available on our Facebook page if you want to catch up and listen to some of the ones you may have missed in the past. Um, Today, we get some interesting words from Jesus in regards to lust and, and the lengths that we go to in which to fight it. So in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following. It's a little bit of a long quote, but, but stay with me. He said this, you can get a large audience together for a striptease act. That is to watch a girl undress on a stage. Now suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think that in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think that there was something equally unusual about the state of the sex instinct among us? Lewis's words here make a point that continue to have relevance for us 60 years later, even more so given the rise in our culture of pornography and sex trafficking and the ongoing conflict between the church and culture. But to Lewis's point, there's been an awkward advertising campaign recently that kind of brought this quote back to mind and I, and I see it on TV and it all revolves around likening frozen food to pornography which is a really weird way to run an advertising campaign and on the travel channel a few years ago a host devoted a whole episode uh, on a very popular show uh, to what's become a common hashtag hashtag food porn and pushing that metaphor to the breaking point The point of all this is to arouse, to awaken some desire that we are then taught we should definitely act upon. And we see this idea in popular media all over uh, TV shows and movies. You know, you have um, the husband who is unhappy in his marriage and maybe he has rude kids. He runs into this woman who sparks desire in him and they have a destructive affair. Or the wife who decides to stay home and raise the kids. She meets someone who awakens all sort of desires and the promise of, of realizing these dreams that lay dormant within her that her milk toast husband could never meet. Jesus' words today say something about this, about how we and how our lust, that our Desires are not something that we need to indulge, but something we need to take great effort to overcome because they make, it's, it's a terrible master to have our lusts. So in the text, he starts off 
by talking about the Torah. When we had uh, Mark Evans as a guest speaker a few weeks back, he mentioned something really important about Jesus's words here in Matthew chapter 5, because his sermon was from this text, uh, this, this chapter, and he mentioned that Jesus is taking the law and he's intensifying the law a little bit here. And we see the, the classic, you have heard it said, but I say to you, where Jesus takes something and then magnifies it to highlight something important. And what he, what he does here is he takes the sixth commandment, right? well, depending on how you count them, right? But the sixth commandment from the 10 commandments, and that commandment is, you shall not commit adultery, and he comments on it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So obviously, right, we all know <laughs> that adultery is bad, right? It's a sin no matter what popular media said. And in the context of the ancient world, it's kind of the same as ours, right? Adultery is physical and emotional relations with someone who is not your spouse. And this is codified, right, in the Ten Commandments, in God's law, along with the commandment to not covet. However, Jesus is doing something here. He's getting to the heart of a problem. He's getting to the heart of something. And he says, he intensifies it by saying, the act of looking at someone with lustful intent is already adultery. Now, it's probably worth, brothers and sisters, just taking a second here. I'm not talking about appreciating beauty, right? Lust is not the act of appreciating beauty, right? But what lust is, it begins when we begin to dwell on someone else, thinking about them and objectifying them and letting that grow and fantasizing about them in our mind. F.F. Bruce puts it like this, Jesus traces the adulterous act back to the lustful glance and thought and says it's there that the rot starts. It's there where the check must be immediately applied, right? So it's not just the act, but the mental processes, right, that lead to, to adultery. It may be a sin to commit the act, but it's also a sin to indulge those thoughts that eventually lead someone to such an act. But even if the thought doesn't lead to the act, the act has already been performed in the mind. And in the words of Christ, that is just as bad. St. Theophila commenting on this wrote, if he did not add it to the deed itself, what of it? He was not able. If he had been able, he would have. So in light of this, how the heck do we deal with lustful intent and keep it from taking roots in our hearts? Because once it actually takes root inside of us, it gives way to indulgence. And, and this is incredibly difficult to do, especially in our culture where everything we see in advertising is designed to inflame our desire for something, something that we don't have, something that we need, and we don't know why we need it, we just need it. I remember one, <laughs> one time, I'll be, it's a stupid example, but I remember when I had an iPhone 3GS, and it was a great phone, and then they announced the iPhone 4. And I was like, I am getting this thing the day it comes out. So my friend and I, Silas, we, we, came, we went to the mall, because that's where the Apple store was, and we got there early in the morning, and no one was there, so we went to a diner, and we came back, and then it was full. And you would have thought when the doors opened at the mall that, I don't know, there was like a mountain of gold or something in the food court, because everybody ran, right? There was no pushing anybody away, thank God, but it was a madhouse. It was an absolute madhouse for a piece of technology that was only slightly a little bit better than what I already had in my pocket. Jesus goes on on how to deal with 
lust, with lustful intent. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And then he says, it's better that you lose these than your whole body be thrown into hell. So before we get there, though, we should probably ask ourselves why. Why is that bad? Like, if it's just in your mind, what harm is it to somebody else? What harm is it if you don't act on it? Is Jesus a prude? (laughs) Are Christians unnecessarily repressing ourselves? I don't think so. Because we, we don't think like people in the biblical era, because for them, sin isn't just so much of doing something bad. Sin is something that is unclean. Sin is something that corrupts. Think of it sort of like, think of it sort of like gangrene, maybe, right? So, I don't know, there's, pick your, I remember reading a book many years ago where the hero of the book, you know, his, well, he was here in the previous book and then the next book, I guess, his son has to be the hero. So he gets into this fight on a ship and he gets shot and a cannon takes off his, half his leg. So they have to, you know, they have to like sear it and, and amputate and all this uncomfortable stuff. But what happens is, is gangrene starts to set in and it slowly begins to rot away his leg and it leads ultimately to him, him dying of it. That's what sin is like. Sin is like gangrene or like food left out in the sun too long. It begins to rot, right? And if you eat it, you get sick and you can even die. This is what happens in us when we indulge in sin. We submit ourselves to something that is unhealthy for our souls and for our bodies. And St. Paul had to remind the the Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. We miss this in our culture We miss this because in our culture, we are our own. In this rugged individualism, right? We are our own person. Our own little world matters more. It's all about me, my life, my happiness. That's what our culture values, independence. But being a Christian, brothers and sisters, means that we find true freedom by serving. Because we, if we have been redeemed by Christ, we do not belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Christ. Next Sunday, we'll be observed as Christ the King, just before we get into Advent. Christ is the King. That word is very unpopular nowadays because We don't like authority. We don't like having to answer to anybody. But Christ is our king, and he's ruling and he's reigning over us right now. We are not our own. If If we are in Christ, then we belong to Christ. Our bodies, then, are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and temples are sacred spaces. And if our bodies are sacred spaces meant for something greater, namely the indwelling of God himself in us, it matters how we live. Because in the scriptures we see whenever indulgence in sin is brought into sacred space, whatever has brought that sin in is destroyed. So if the act begins in the mind, in the gaze, the dwelling of it then, 
the, the counter to the dwelling on it is the cutting off the problem at the root as symbolized by the strong language of removing the eye and cutting off your hand. We know Jesus is not telling people to actually pluck out their eye and cut off their hand, right? We know he's using very strong, very strong hyperbolic language to make this point about how important it is to actually cut this off at the root. The eye represents what we gaze at, what we see, and the hand represents the actions that we undertake in fulfilling what we have been tempted to do. Excuse me. I'll give you a silly example. So, the one day, and it all comes down to food for me. <laughs> the, my wife is not. So, the one day I had eaten lunch, and it was a nice lunch, and uh, I was driving somewhere. And as I was driving, you know, because we're, we're where we are, there's McDonald's are everywhere, right? It's kind of a thing. And I was like, you know, I could really, I could really have an ice, like an ice cream sundae. Like they're small, they're only like that big. But you know, you all, whenever you eat them, it always like kind of overflows over the rim and you're like, oh, okay. I was like, I really want an ice cream sundae. And I was like, I don't need an ice cream sundae because I'm full, <laughs> right? I had eaten a good lunch, my wife had packed it for me. I didn't need anything else. I don't need the sundae. So I'm driving past. So if I say to myself, I don't need the sundae, I'm full and just keep going, then I'm fine, and I don't eat this, I don't pull it, I don't eat the sundae, and I'm okay, and I don't gorge myself. But if I were to think to myself, well, I did eat a good lunch, and I am full, but that ice cream is really good. I really do like soft serve, and it's only like, I don't know, a buck 50, maybe a buck 85 or something like that with tax. And, I, the, the, you know, the chocolate sauce is actually pretty good. I mean, and I could just pull it, and I could eat it really quick, it's not going to ruin my dinner, right? I mean, and the ice cream will melt anyway inside, right? So it'll just kind of go in between all the nooks and crannies of what's already in my stomach, right? Because, you know, that's how my mind works. If I were to do that, right, over and over and over again, what am I going to do? I'm going to pull into the McDonald's, I'm going to get the stupid ice cream sundae, and I'm going to sit in the parking lot, and I'm going to eat it. And that time I didn't, so. Rest assured. I didn't. I didn't. That time, anyway. Right? And, and so I, I, I'm using that on purpose, right, brothers and sisters? It's a silly example of how lust takes root in our mind, how lustful intent takes root in our mind. And if we don't stop it where it begins, if we don't cut it off right away, it becomes more difficult and more difficult and harder and harder and harder to not only to say no to, but then to not do. Because we know we can get to a place where we say no, but that doesn't stop us. We have to cut it off at the very beginning. At the very beginning. And we have to create distance between us and what is tempting us. We have to starve ourselves from what inflames our lustful desires. And desire in itself isn't a bad thing, right? We need to understand this. Like we were created as human beings with desire for for, for family, for, for, for food, for all of this stuff. The desire for those things aren't bad in and of themselves. That's what we do with them. But another way to understand this, several ancient Christian commentators also make the connection between the eye and the hand, not just the things that we see and the things that we do that, that drive us in, to fulfill lustful desires. They also make the connection between uh, who we associate ourselves with. Like, in other words, like kind of like our friends. 
And St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. And if you ever went to youth group like I did, you know, you're always like, well, how do I like apply that? I have a friend that kind of curses every once in a while. Does that mean I have to cut off that friend? You know, when you're a zealous, I don't know, 16 year old, sometimes you make bad decisions, like getting rid of all your U2 CDs. But brothers and sisters, we have to understand as well, right? That sometimes the bad things that we do we may not participate them necessarily if we were by ourselves. Sometimes the things that we do are driven by the people we surround ourselves with. You know, one trope that, that, that pops up all the time in fiction, right? You have the, you have the guy who's, you know, the, he, he's, he's a fighter or a criminal or something, and he's trying to leave the life behind. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a good man now. I've, I've left all that behind me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, beat people up or rob banks or do any. I'm not going to drive the getaway car anymore. And then what happens? Some of his friends from his past are like, hey, you were a really good driver. You're working in a diner. You know, you need to come work with us. We'll give you lots and lots and lots of money. He starts spending more and more time with this old crew. And what happens? Right? Like Michael Colleone says in Godfather 3, every time I'm out, they pull me back in. Right? No one, no one, no Godfather? Okay, anyway. But they get pulled back in, right? So who we spend our time with, the people that we allow into our lives have an effect on the things that we do. And the last thing that you need is someone whispering in your ear. If you're married, the last thing you need is someone whispering in your ear, like you're having problems with your spouse, go check out that person over there. That's the last thing you need. Are the people we're spending time with, are they helping us or are they harming us? Are they driving us to do things that we normally wouldn't do? I remember a few weeks ago, I read the story of the young man who was basically dragged by his friends to the Colosseum. They kind of tried to force him to go. And instead of saying, no, I'm not going to go, he allowed them to drag him along. And then when he got there, he said, I'm not going to watch. And then he did. And he got drawn into it. And it took him years to escape that life. So one final thing I think we need to think about today in regards to the word of Jesus, lust does a couple of things, right? Particularly in regard to relationship. Lust objectifies and lust dehumanizes. So to objectify means to degrade to the status of an object. A lustful gaze turns a person from an actual person into a thing, into a thing. It dehumanizes, it strips someone of their humanity, and it turns them into a mechanism by which one can get whatever feeling they're after. And it ignores the image of God, the imago dei, that every human person carries within themselves. So when lust presents itself, don't take the bait, because if you do take the bait, you'll begin down the path, and the path results in you eventually being unable to say no to the bait at all and lead you even deeper into self-destruction. But we're not alone, brothers and sisters. We have been given the Holy Spirit, and we have each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the church, and we have the sacraments. And the Spirit will help us. We need only ask. 
And to close everything by quoting Lewis again, since we started with him, we'll end with him. He wrote this, good and evil both increase at a compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. And brothers and sisters, that's what lust does, is it seeds ground to our enemy. And it makes it easier and easier for our enemy and for our fallen nature to wage war against our souls. This is why the words of Jesus here are so pertinent even today in dealing with lust and lustful intent because it will lead us to destruction, both physically and spiritually. It can destroy our relationships, it can destroy our families, and it can throw everything into chaos. So let us then ask God to give us the strength to do so, and he will if we ask. And so to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, be all glory together with the Father who is from everlasting and is all holy, good, and life-giving spirit. Amen. One of the things that uh, I was thinking about after I preached this sermon was sometimes when we preach about how to deal with our lusts, we kind of turn it into do this, don't do that. And one thing that I neglected to mention in my sermon that I wanted to just touch on briefly in this postscript, addendum, whatever you want to call it. I just wanted to, to highlight the necessity of regular ongoing uh, prayer. But we will not be able to fight against those lusts unless we have a really good, strong, spiritual base upon them, upon that which we can stand. It makes things a lot, well, I don't want to use the word easy, but what it does is if we have that routine of set, set aside time of prayer, of fasting, of reflection, of communing with God, not only here in service, but also in our homes, it helps us to build up deep wells of spiritual reserves that we, that, that we may need to draw upon in order to resist against those lusts that try to, that try to trap us. And I just wanted to say a quick word about that, the importance of <laughs> maybe the proportionality, maybe, of the amount of time we spend in prayer to the ability that we have been given by God to not succumb to, to the lusts that we encounter on a daily basis. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that in there. Thank you again for listening, and welcome to have you visit with us again next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to check us out online, zionstoneucc.com, or on our Facebook page, zionstoneucc. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you want to get a hold of me, shoot me an email at malandsman at gmail.com or through our social media page, like I just mentioned. If you could take a couple minutes, we would appreciate it if you went to a GoFundMe we've set up, gofundme.com slash savezionstone. 
in order to donate towards some big repairs that we need to have done to the church. So if you could donate anything, we would greatly appreciate it. If you're in the area, come worship with us. Our services are at 1015 and our Sunday school is at 9 a.m. Thank you so much again for listening. May God bless you.